0: Hello, this is Jimmy LaSalle, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today, we will go over westward expansion, the California Gold Rush, ghost towns, and the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. We will have a guest today, Lindsay Merold, from the Union Pacific Railroad Museum in Council Bluffs, Iowa. But before we get to Lindsay and her story, we have our resident master of history, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away.
1: Okay, so... To understand all the complexities of westward expansion, we have to talk about a number of really different topics. They're all related, but they all had an impact on how the west was settled and what happened as a result of that settlement. A lot of times, people always talk about the positives of westward expansion, but you can't forget about the impact that that expansion had on Native Americans. And that is not so positive, right? In fact, for Native American groups, it had mostly negative impacts. With the end of the Mexican-American War, the United States gained really a vast amount of territory and realized its goal of manifest destiny. The United States had gained control of the continent from the Atlantic Ocean, to the Pacific Ocean. One time, you know, the thought of settlers living west of the Mississippi, where Native Americans had been forced to relocate, was really a foreign one. With the gaining of new territories and the desire for more land, more and more people moved west on what had once been designated as Indian territory. Yet again, Natives who had already been relocated would see their lands taken away, relocated again, or see their population and land significantly reduced. By 1849, with the California Gold Rush, more and more people were choosing to settle west. Living in the west, it wasn't easy, nor was the journey to get there. By the 1830s, a variety of railroad and canal companies began popping up throughout the United States, the majority of them throughout the North. As the frontier moved further and further west, the need and the want to be able to bring people and products west increased. We had acquired the land up to the Pacific Ocean. Now we had to populate it a variety of technologies created during the Industrial Revolution began to change the way people lived and communicated. For example, you know, you have the Pony Express, right? And that was eventually replaced by telegraph lines and the ability to send telegrams. As more people began to flock westward for, you know, a variety of reasons, the creation of the Transcontinental Railroad would change not only how people lived, but where they were able to live. The railroad, while really a wonder of the industrial world and the spark for many positives, was also the catalyst of destruction for the indigenous people of the United States. Now, one of the first major topics that we have to talk about is the California Gold Rush. This is from 1848 to 1849, The discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill in California caused a mass migration of people, not only from surrounding areas and throughout the United States, but also from other parts of the world. Hundreds of thousands of settlers came to the area in the hopes of striking it rich. Some came by sea, sailing for months around the tip of South America and arrived in San Francisco. Others traveled by land, using the California Trail, the Oregon Trail, or even the Mormon Trail to get west. These trails, many of them first traveled by fur trappers and traders, were quickly flooded by settlers and horse-drawn wagons. Some of you may remember playing the Oregon Trail game in school. If you have never played that game you will never truly understand the devastation of finding out that your entire family died because you refused to wait a day to cross the river by raft. If you have never played, go, stop this podcast, come back and listen to the rest of it, but stop this podcast and go to ClassicReload.com and play. You won't regret it. It's a great way that I have found to teach this topic And you can also give various scenarios to your students. You can have them make decisions as if they're the ones traveling along the frontier. There are wonderful resources at the California State Library. They have great primary sources of letters from people who had made the journey across the continent to California prior to the Transcontinental Railroad being built. You know, the journey was difficult Many settlers traveled together on what would become known as wagon trains. Traveling together created a sense of safety and really a support system. You took only your most essential items. Selling what was left behind to buy the needed supplies for your journey. A broken wagon wheel, disease, dangerous river crossings, bandits. These were just some of the dangers, yet People still came. Taking only the most essential items, they were forced to abandon many of those things along the way. The number of graves along the trails are really staggering. The thousands of prospectors who arrived in California in 1849 became known as the 49ers. It wasn't just some miners who became wealthy. Mining was difficult, and the more people who showed up, the more difficult it became to strike it rich. Unless you were a merchant in the area, then you made money hand over fist selling mining supplies. The swell in population also helped California to become a state faster, and it entered the Union in 1850 as a free state. Um, If you listen to our podcast on the events of the 1850s, we talked about the Compromise of 1850, which is how California was able to enter as a free state. If you haven't listened to that podcast, go back and take a listen. Another example of, you know, finding either gold or silver was the Comstock Lode of Nevada in 1858. The discovery of silver in the region, which was the first in the United States, also encouraged settlement. Now, in these areas where people are finding, whether it be gold or you know, silver. We see the creation of boom towns and eventually those famous ghost towns you may have heard about. We see the rise of towns springing up. So once an area was designated as being rich with gold or silver, you know, people quickly flooded the area. These prospectors would need a place to live. Towns quickly sprung up around mines You'll have boarding houses, grocery stores, or a mercantile, a post office, a jail, and of course, many saloons. When we think of mining, we sometimes imagine the image of that rugged cowboy sifting with a pan and mining tools. Now, that did happen, but mining was not easy, and it required heavy machinery. Now, how did that machinery get there, and who brought it there? Before the Transcontinental Railroad, it had to be brought over by sea around the tip of South America or through the isthmus of Panama. Eventually, there will be the canal there. The voyage was expensive and the machinery needed was equally expensive. So you have thousands of hopefuls who have rushed westward in the hopes of becoming rich, but it will be these Eastern financiers who have put up the money, bought the rights to the mines, for example, that are really the ones who will be getting rich. When the mines dried up, people left and they moved on to other places with other opportunities. These once booming, gunslinging towns had been deserted and they became known as ghost towns. Many of these ghost towns still remain today. Some have become tourist attractions like the ghost towns of Bodie and Calico, California. When people refer to this time period, people refer to it as the Wild West. And that is true to an extent. Many of these boom towns didn't have the funds to keep a local sheriff on the payroll. There is very little government in many of these places, so what do you do? You have people taking the law into their own hands. You have vigilante groups. You have lawlessness. Westward expansion also had a significant impact on Native Americans. The Indian Appropriations Act of 1851 established the reservation system in the United States. What this act did was it designated land for Native Americans to live on and they could not leave without permission. It was a way to put Native American tribes under government control and Americanize them. With the loss of ancestral lands, it became increasingly difficult to maintain their traditional ways of life no longer able to leave, follow the buffalo, fish, or gather traditional foods. Many groups came dependent on government-provided rations, which introduced new foods that also made them sick. Many died of starvation and disease. You know, no longer able to provide the basics for their families, many Native Americans were forced to find labor jobs, Many found jobs within the mining communities that sprang around mines, whether cooking or cleaning, or even those who had become sex slaves for the predominantly male populated boomtowns of the West. They quickly found themselves competing for jobs against newly arrived Asian immigrants who had arrived on the Pacific coast. For many Native American children, they found themselves in Indian schools that were created to force further assimilation. Their parents were gone. Their native language was gone. Their traditional clothing was gone. The education provided was one that would allow them to assimilate into American society. It wasn't successful. Many attempted to run away and resisted the new cultural ways being taught to them. Native American tribes resisted these measures, and it resulted in a number of Indian wars. You may recall learning about the Sioux Wars, the Battle of Little Bighorn, or Custer's Last Stand. The result of gold being discovered on Native American lands was war. White settlers called for protection from natives as they settled and mined for gold on native lands. You know, imagine that hypocrisy. While the Sioux and Cheyenne defeated Custer, they still fled their land out of fear of retaliation. These wars aren't really discussed much in history classes or textbooks. And if they are, they are typically given a small paragraph or a minor footnote. In 1887, the Dawes Act was passed. The Dawes Act gave the federal government the right to break up tribal lands into individual allotments. Native Americans who agreed to these individual plots were given citizenship. This law also allowed these individual parcels to be given to non native settlers. It was common to see ads showcasing the availability of Indian lands. These lands were sold by the Department of the Interior. In my research for this podcast, I reached out to the Historical Preservation Department of the Cheyenne Nation and was quickly put into contact with a man by the name of Wallace Beercham, who agreed to speak with us about the impact that westward expansion had on the Cheyenne Nation. And our next podcast will be completely dedicated to that conversation. So I hope you will listen to our next podcast for that really important conversation. What had been once designated as Indian territory was now being carved up into land that was being settled by whites and would eventually be admitted to the union as a state. The discovery of gold and the granting of land through the Homestead Act helped to spur settlement of the western United States. Life for these new settlers wasn't easy. The land proved to be difficult to farm, and it also required heavy machinery. And again, how did they get that? They had to take loans from eastern financiers, eastern banks. Now, the Homestead Act, some people have heard about it, some people haven't. The Homestead Act of 1862 gave 160 acres of land to any settler, citizen or immigrant alike, who was either the head of a household or over the age of 21, and who agreed to live on and work or farm the land for five years, or they could choose to purchase the land for 25 cents an acre after six months. Homesteaders had to pay pay a small filing fee. Combined with the Morrill Land Grant, which helped to create colleges and universities to promote technology for farmers that would help them to cultivate the land, it helped to spur Western settlement. I talked more about this in our episode on Lincoln's presidency when this act was passed. You know, lured to the West with promises of fertile land and a chance at the American dream, people headed West. If you are a little house on the prairie fan, you know, you may be imagining paw angles packing up that wagon and heading out to the big woods to go find land out West. The farmland wasn't always lush and easy to farm. In fact, many required the use of heavy machinery and they had to take loans from Eastern bankers, as I mentioned earlier. Life in the Great Plains region wasn't easy. In the post-Civil War era, we see an increase in immigration to the United States. Now, of course, many immigrants settled in the big cities of the East, but the offer of 160 acres of farmland out West encouraged many immigrants to go westward. The opportunity to old land was once thought to be beyond their reach, especially if you consider the old European custom of land being inherited only by the eldest son. So instead of living in the tenements of, let's say, New York City or Chicago, many immigrants chose to continue on in their journey and head westward. Now, homesteaders were expected to build homes and work the land. In areas where trees were not in abundance, homes were built into hills or were made out of sod, and this was no easy task. The sod bricks were heavy and they dried quickly, so you couldn't cut more sod from the ground than you can use each day. Those homes were often referred to as soddies. Farming the land was equally as difficult. Extreme weather conditions such as droughts, blizzards, tornadoes, ruined crops, and the dreams of many farmers. Some packed up yet again and went further west or went back home. For the ones who stayed, the farmers began to work together. The Granger movement was an alliance of farmers who worked together to improve their conditions. Many of the things they advocated for became part of the populist movement in the late 1800s, which we will talk about in a future podcast. With more people living out west, a desire to connect the markets of the eastern and western half of the country, and a need to tame the Wild West by bringing government there, the idea to build a railroad line to connect two regions led to the creation of a transcontinental railroad, the first of its kind in the world. The Pacific Railroad Act of 1862 was when you see calls to build a railroad line to reach the Pacific coast on the United States. Now, these calls began before the start of the Civil War. Debates over where the line would run, in the north or in the south, stalled the issue until 1862. After Southern states seceded, Congress passed the Pacific Road Act in 1862. The railroad and telegraph lines would be built along the 32nd parallel. Two companies were charged with building the railroad lines. The Union Pacific, which would begin building the line in Missouri, and the Central Pacific, which would begin building in California. Now they would somehow have to carve their way through the Sierra Nevada mountains and the two companies would meet in the middle. The meeting point was not known at the start of construction, but would eventually be Promontory Point in Utah. As an incentive, Congress gave each company thousands of acres of land for each mile of track That they laid. At the start of construction, the offer was 6,400 acres of land for every mile of track. Over time, to offer an even greater incentive to move as quickly as possible, that number was doubled. And in addition, they received thousands of dollars in federal bonds. The government would not pay a cent until 40 miles of track were laid. An abundance of wealth was at stake, and each company raced to lay as much track as they could. Over the course of seven years, these two companies worked at record-breaking paces to get the job done. The labor demand to build the railroad was significant. The goal was to get the job done as quickly and as cheaply as possible. Immigrants from China were employed by the Union Pacific Railroad Company. Now, this railroad is being built on the backs of immigrants, immigrants who would be later singled out by the American government and further immigration banned by the Chinese Exclusion Act. Chinese Americans would not be allowed to become citizens until the 1940s, and they faced tremendous amounts of discrimination. When we talk about the transcontinental railroad, people always discuss the achievement of such a feat, the ingenuity, the possibilities for growth that it created, and rightfully so. But we must also equally discuss how it destroyed the Native American way of life and how the individuals who labored on this great example of American ingenuity, how they were treated and the impact that it had on indigenous tribes. The Central Pacific Company was funded by four California merchants in 1861. They paid engineer Theodore Judah to do a survey on the best possible path through the Sierra Nevada mountains. This railroad will have to climb a summit thousands of miles high, and it would require the digging of tunnels through mountains of rock. They hired thousands of Chinese immigrants who had come to California during the gold rush. The discrimination they faced trying to get jobs resulted in many of these immigrants' to accept being paid less than the white workers doing the same job and sometimes less dangerous jobs the work was extremely dangerous and backbreaking in order to dig tunnels through the mountains it required the use of explosives and really round the clock work and it you're 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 forced to kind of constantly hammer and chisel away at the granite Imagine working and doing this for 10 to 12 hours, and at the end of the day, you were an inch or an inch and a half further into the tunnel than when you started. And tomorrow, and the day after that, it's going to be the same thing. These workers chiseled through mountains. They dangled off of cliffs by rope that are thousands of feet in the air, They dealt with severe weather. We're talking snowdrifts and avalanches. The Transcontinental Railroad would not have been possible without the labor of immigrants, especially Chinese immigrants. The Union Pacific Company would begin building their line by the Missouri River near the Nebraska and Iowa border and would head west. This company would also face difficulties in building their portion of the railroad line. The Union Pacific would be marred with scandal as a result of Credit Mobilier, which which we talked more about during the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. And today we are joined by Lindsay Merolt, the education coordinator at the Union Pacific Railroad Museum in Iowa.
0: My name is Lindsay Marlt, and I'm the Education Coordinator at the Union Pacific Railroad Museum in Council Bluffs, Iowa. The Historic Collection and Archive are a corporate collection that is owned by Union Pacific, but the museum itself is run by a separate nonprofit. The museum is located in Council Bluffs rather than across the Missouri River in Omaha, Nebraska, where Union Pacific is headquartered. This is because mile zero of the Transcontinental Railroad is officially located in Council Bluffs by executive order of President Abraham Lincoln. The Transcontinental Railroad came to be because of the Pacific Railroad Act passed by Congress and signed by Lincoln in 1862. It created the Union Pacific Railroad, which would build track from Omaha, Nebraska to the west and hired the Central Pacific Railroad, which would build track from Sacramento, California to the east. They met at Promontory Summit, Utah, in May 1869. Central Pacific began construction in 1863 and ended up employing primarily Chinese immigrants, many of whom the railroad recruited directly from China. Union Pacific, delayed by difficulties due, the, due to the American Civil War, broke ground in 1863 but did not actually begin construction until 1865. Their workforce consisted largely of Irish immigrants
1: and American Civil War veterans. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. One of the things I'd like for you to talk about is just to discuss the methods that were used to build the Transcontinental Railroad, the types of tools, the typical workday for laborers, and the difficulties or dangers in building the Transcontinental Railroad.
0: Building the Transcontinental Railroad was difficult and dangerous. Railroad work was one of the most deadly jobs a person could have in the 1800s. Untold numbers of men died building the railroad. Untold because the railroad companies did not keep track of worker deaths. Estimates range from as low as 50 on either side to well over 1,000. Workers for both Union Pacific and Central Pacific worked up to seven days a week, 12 to 16 hours a day, through blistering heat and frigid cold. Laborers worked as pick and shovel men, blacksmiths, masons, carpenters, mechanics, teamsters, and tracklayers. Union Pacific built a great deal of their portion of the railroad on the plains, which was faster and slightly easier going than the Central Pacific, who built through the perilous Sierra Nevada mountains, where the pace of digging tunnels could be mere inches a day.
1: Now, what can you tell us about the living conditions for the workers who helped to build the railroad?
0: Living conditions for the transcontinental railroad workers were rough. Construction was far from any established American settlements, and construction was essentially a constantly moving camp. It was a hard way to live. Though colored with prejudice, Union Pacific managers described frequent hard drinking and fighting among the Irish workers. The railroad was also often late in paying workers their wages, but they expected continuous work regardless. Worker pay varied somewhat by job, but generally they received between $26 and $35 a month. Central Pacific's Chinese workers received less pay than their white counterparts. Historians estimate that they cost the Central Pacific between one-half and two-thirds what white workers cost. Furthermore, the Chinese workers paid for their own food and cooks. In 1867, Chinese workers went on a strike for higher pay and shorter working hours. Though Central Pacific succeeded in suppressing the strike through starvation and threats, pay for many of the Chinese workers seems to have increased over the following months. Union Pacific created the City on Wheels, which allowed the railroad to more or less efficiently provide for their workers' most basic needs, This City on Wheels train followed construction and contained cars for food preparation, dining, and bunks for sleeping, as well as cars for offices and supplies. Workers also sometimes slept in tents or sod homes when their work took them far from the construction train. Union Pacific City on Wheels also carried around a thousand rifles because workers were not only serving on a construction site but on the front lines of a war between the United States and Western tribes such as the Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho who violently defended their homelands against invasion by way of national infrastructure. The Transcontinental Railroad was part of the colonial project of Manifest Destiny. The belief held by many white Americans that the United States was both destined and responsible for conquering the full length of the North American continent.
1: How did the government's incentives of land and bonds influence the way that the lines were built? And what did the Union Pacific Railroad Company do with the thousands of acres of land it received?
0: In the 1862 Pacific Railroad Act, the federal government provided for the railroads to receive a certain amount of land and money for every mile of road. The railroads built as fast and as cheap as possible to get that money. After the railroad was finished, crews had to go back and replace some of the more shoddy, cheaply done work. Union Pacific sold the land it received to settlers and speculators to help finance construction. The railroads heavily promoted this land to prospective settlers in the eastern United States and in parts of Europe to encourage immigration. This was also part of the larger project of Manifest Destiny in which the railroad, in conjunction with legislation like the Homestead Act, was meant to attract more Americans to move and colonize the West.
1: What might people be surprised to know about the Transcontinental Railroad or the museum itself?
0: When the railroad was completed, transcontinental travel, trade, and communication could be much faster than it had been before. The perilous, months-long overland journey turned into a relatively safe, if not terribly comfortable, couple-week trip, at least as long as you were traveling someplace along the rail line. However, the railroad industry also played a significant role in the economic panic of 1873. Just four years after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, rampant speculation and overinvestment in railroad construction contributed to a massive economic downturn that was known as the Great Depression until the 1930s. Lindsay, thank you so much for contributing to this podcast. jean take us through the completion of the railroad and tell our listeners what they have to look forward to in our next podcast.
1: Construction on the Transcontinental Railroad ended on May 10, 1869 with the Golden Spike in Promontory Point, Utah. News of the completion of the railroad was celebrated throughout the country. News quickly spread through the use of the telegraph lines that had also been installed across the continent. What was once a long and difficult journey now took one week. The economies of the eastern and western half of the United States were now connected. When the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, what time the trains would be arriving and departing proved to be really a logistical nightmare. When it came to telling time, there were typically three ways to measure. Natural time, which is measuring the movement of the sun in the sky, then local time, and then railroad time. Each rail line would print timetables of when the trains were scheduled. And there were many different rail lines. Time needed to be standardized. Eventually, in 1883, four time zones were created in the United States. Eastern, Central, Mountain, and Pacific. The Standard Time Act of 1918 would make this official in the United States. When this topic is discussed, it almost always focuses on the positives, but it is also important to discuss the negatives that came from it as well. We touched on those a little bit throughout this podcast, but on our next episode, we will be joined by Wallace Birchum, a member of the Cheyenne Nation, and I hope that that you will join us for this incredibly important conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.